The American tourist that was visiting an impoverished South American nation was deeply troubled. He had just toured an opulent Roman Catholic church building. The exquisite artistry, the luxurious furnishings, the superior building materials were remarkable. And what riled him was the vivid contrast between this extravagant building and the abject poverty of the community in which the building stood. Indeed, the priest boasted that the people of the community had largely supplied the funds for the building. How can the church justify this extravagance? The tourists protested in a spirit of righteous indignation, knowing it has been funded by contributions from such poor people. How is this possible? You don't understand, the priest replied. By pooling their meager resources, our impoverished people have the privilege to enjoy beauty and wealth that they could never otherwise enjoy. Well, before anyone gets too teary-eyed, we should recognize this was a dodge on one level. Receiving contributions from people the church assures are thereby gaining the favor of God, possibly even release from purgatorial suffering, is evil. But there was a nugget of truth in this priest's response. There was a nugget of truth there. The God of the Bible does encourage His people to pool their resources for the purpose of magnifying His name and advancing His cause. This is something that we find throughout the Scriptures. This is close to the heart of God. As we are called to influence our world by our corporate witness of the Gospel, so we are called by God and privileged to move our world by our corporate giving to the advance of Christ's cause on earth. As much as He desires our words to spread the gospel, so He desires our gifts to advance His cause. Last week, we tracked the efforts of the Apostle Paul as he encouraged the Gentile churches under his influence to do just this, to pool their resources together to address a particular need, in this case, the impoverished church in Jerusalem. The goal was to display the love of God and to dramatically emphasize that through the cross of Christ, Jew and Gentile had been brought together in one body. We've left the Apostle Paul in jail in Caesarea. We're going to leave him there for a little bit longer. Uh, somebody said, I think suddenly we've got the goal of we're going to cover the entire Bible in three weeks. We've, we've dealt with a lot of texts on Sunday morning and Sunday night, and we're going to really do that today. So prepare yourselves. But there is a connection here, and I don't want to just arbitrarily draw that connection, but we've gone from Paul, having just left Jerusalem for the last time, and looked back at the gifts of the Gentile churches to those believers in Jerusalem. What I'd like to do now is to turn back and trace back further in time this same theme, to track the spirit of that gift back by considering some of the ancient moorings of God's pleasure to accomplish His purposes by means of His people pooling their resources. We can cynically kind of say, well, this is something we're up to as a church in a unique way, and we are. But we, what I'd like us to see, and to sort of be, in a sense, really moved by a larger discussion as we look 
at this place in God's program through the ages. And so first, I'd like us to turn to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. What the Apostle Paul was doing in the gift to the Jerusalem church was something very unique. On the other hand, it was not unique at all. To see God moving this way, encouraging His people to pool their resources, is something that had been going on for a long time and is really, I think, close to His heart. As we come to Exodus 24, we'll be looking at verse 15 to begin with. But remember, under the leadership of Moses, as we know, God delivers the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. The Israel journeys to Mount Sinai where God graciously descends to the summit in order to meet with His liberated people. The people are cordoned off from Mount Sinai on pain of death and they tremble with fear at the terrifying presence of God. But Moses, verse 15 of Exodus 24, went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. Notice the heart of those whose heart moves them. The Creator invites His people here to join Him in the completion of a project. He first invites them to designate gifts to fund the project. And we notice here that no one is obligated to give and no amount of money is specified. The only people invited to contribute to this gift are those whose hearts move them to contribute. That's all I want. That's all I'm asking if their heart moves them to contribute, I'm inviting them to contribute to what I'm doing. So they're to search their hearts. The Israelites are to prayerfully discern what part they want to have in partnering with God to complete His project. And I don't think you can really ask that question without asking, what part does God want me to have? But really, they can look at it that way. What part do I want to have? How does God move in my heart to participate in this project? Verse 3. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. So, for those that are moved, here's what they're to give. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece that is worn by the priest, the high priest, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. These raw materials then, secured from the Egyptians undoubtedly, we see are to come from the Israelites, and we also recognize they're not cheap. God is saying, I have a project. If your heart stirs you, here's what I want you to give. The most valuable metals, the finest fabrics, 
The best wood, acacia wood, doesn't decay. Valuable spices, oil and skins, the most precious stones. Then God reveals what all these gifts are for here in verses 8 and 9. That there may be a sanctuary built where I may dwell in the midst of my people. Then in chapters 25 through 31, we find details of God's instructions concerning the design, the construction, and the service of this tabernacle. We move to chapter 35, Exodus 35. Beginning at verse 4, Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. This is God's design, it's His purpose. There is an invitation then to the people to join him who have a generous heart. Verse 5. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of a generous heart. Let him bring the Lord's contribution. And he repeats these materials that are to be brought. Verse 10. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. Not only would the Israelites donate the raw materials for the project, from their own wealth, but they would also invest their time and skills in the construction of the tabernacle. Verse 11, the tabernacle, its tent, its coverings. Now just think of this, and we have pictures of it in our mind, but think of what they're gathering. For its covering, for its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, for this great fence around it. The ark with its poles, the mercy seat, the veil of the screen, great material screen, the table with its poles and all of its utensils and the bread of the presence and the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light and the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the door and the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its grating and bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stands, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases and the screen for the gate of the court. The pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court, their cords, finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons, and and for their service as priests. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. Moses gives God's instructions, highly valuable materials, to be invested in this project that God designs. Now, what are the people going to do? At verse 20, he sends them home, and he has talked to those whose hearts stir them. What do they do? Verse 21 is crucial. And they came. And they came. They showed up. And they came. Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of the meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. They came. And notice again the phrase, their hearts stirred them. Paralleling verse 5 of chapter 35, whoever is of generous heart, and 25 to every man whose heart moves him. There's a continual theme here. This theme will now continue to play out as the text unfolds. Verse 22, so they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart. There it is again. They brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tan ram skins or goat skins brought them. And everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. 
And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it, and every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had, spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goats here. There's their stirring again. Their hearts were stirred. 27, and the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them. There it is again. To bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. Remember, God has given to the Israelites the law concerning tithes. There is to be a tithe that is part of the very way that they see life, of their very culture. This is an extra project. This is something on top of those tithes and offerings, something unique. And you see again, verse 21, verse 5, verse 21, 22, and the sections that flow, we have this constant reference to those whose hearts are stirred to participate. The tithe was not optional for the Israelites. This project was. You don't have to be part of it. But if your heart stirs you to join in to what I am doing, God invites the Israelites to join Him and to give. He has a plan. He knows exactly what He wants to do. How does God bring that plan about? By stirring their hearts. And they then will execute the plan by pouring out their gifts and applying their skills to the task. God had placed material wealth into their hands, and He had given them gifts by which they could skillfully bring this about, these talents, to serve his sovereign purposes. Chapters 35 through 39 recount the construction of the tabernacle. Very interesting, as we have much repetition here, but I think the point is, here's what you are to make, God says. It's not a given that they will. And so the text unveils, they did exactly what God said. They did make what he called them to make. Verses 35, or chapters 35 through 39. Now, the conclusion of the matter, chapter 39, verse 43. A crucial text, chapter 39 and verse 43. 39, 43, Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. The work is done. They've brought it about, and with joy of heart, they've accomplished this task that the Lord has given. Now, many generations pass, as we know. Israel conquers the promised land and brings the tabernacle across the Jordan with them. But as they are preparing, before they cross the Jordan, as they are preparing to enter this promised land, Moses prophesies numerous times in the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy that this, there will be a place that God will choose as a permanent place for the worship of His name. He never names the place. But I'd like you to put your eye on it. Deuteronomy chapter 12, as we look at this prophecy. So we're from the pen of Moses preparing the Israelites to cross into the promised land, tabernacle in tow. Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 5. Deuteronomy 12, verse 5. 
But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. What is he saying? There will be a place of central worship. One place to which the Israelites come to fulfill the offerings that I have prescribed, their tithes and their free will offerings. There will be a place. I'm not telling you where it is. It's over there in the promised land. You're going to have to cross the Jordan. You're going to have to get there. And you're going to have to figure it out as you walk in dependence upon me. I'm not giving you the place at this point. God does not reveal where the site is and it doesn't come into clarity where it is for 400 years i'm sure there's a lot of israelites that concluded it's here it's at gibeon or something it's it's been here for a long time it's kiriath jerim the ark is there and maybe this is the 400 years god stirs the heart of a king that he has chosen king david 2 Samuel 7. So Israel has entered the land. We go through that horrible period, not past the conquest in the uh, judges, and the rebellion against God, the revival under Samuel, and then God leads into the monarchy, choosing David, anointing him as Israel's king. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king, David, said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. David at this point has conquered Jerusalem from the Jebusites. He has brought up the Ark of the Covenant that was Kiriath-Jerim for 70 years. He's brought it into the city, and he has housed it now in a tent that he has set up. But as he looks around, he says, I have rest from my enemies, as God has promised. I am prospering. I have built this great palace. And God's Ark, that box over which the presence of God resided among his people, is housed in a tent. I think, I know there's different ways of reading that, but I think what Nathan is saying is God is stirring David's heart. This is good. David wants to bring glory to God. And so he says, go for it. I mean, what's there not to like about such a plan? You want to glorify God? Go for it, king. Something happens, as we know, verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? I'd like you to just lodge this in your head. Remember this scene. God says, I've never asked for a house to dwell in, and I do not need one. 
tell David this. Tell David, he will not build a house for me. But tell David, I am going to build a house for him. Verse 8, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. Notice that. Here's the place that Moses spoke about. The place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. This is the promised land centered in Jerusalem. From the time that I appoint judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you this, that the Lord will make you a house. There it is. You're not going to build me a house, but I will build you a house. What's going on here? David already has a house, already has a palace. What God is saying is it's really a play on words. You want to build for me a temple, I am going to build for you a dynasty. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. There is back to house, the kind of house David meant. He will build a temple for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll build your house, your dynasty. Verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now, the fact that David will not be privileged to build the temple for God does not mean that he cannot contribute to the project. 1 Chronicles chapter 21, we find him doing just that. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Now, the context here in a profound narrative, we are going to have to just skim through, but... Blinded by pride, David commanded that a census be taken of Israel's army. Why do you do that? You do that in his setting. To number your warriors is a way to exercise control. To number your warriors is a way to boast in your power. Even the degenerate Joab knew that was not going to make God happy. And he pleaded with David not to do it, but David sinned with a willful heart against the Lord. God judged David by striking Israel with a great pestilence so that 70,000 men died. The death angel dispatched by God to carry out this grisly business of destruction was stopped at the threshing floor of Ornan, or his name could also be called Arana, on the mount to the north of Jerusalem. That's right where God stopped the angel. That angel is hovering between earth and heaven, with drawn sword, and is stopped there by God at this moment. We pick up there 
21.16 of 1 Chronicles. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces, and David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your people. A prayer of repentance. Now, verse 18, the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel, and its four sons who were with him hid themselves, undoubtedly in, in utter fright. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price that the plague may be averted from the people." Think of this. We, we just don't have time to land, but think of it. God is moving to reveal the place. After 400 years, He's moving to reveal the place. That place is identified because of sin. And in response to David's sin, God says, build an altar there that you may seek the Lord and seek forgiveness. Right here at this spot. Then Ornan, verse 23, said to David, Take it. Let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings, and the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for grain offering. I give it all. It might be noble, but on the other hand, I don't know that Ornan probably had a whole lot of choice there. His Jebusites had just been defeated by David, who had made this his capital. And so he may just be a good businessman, but he's saying, Go ahead, have it. Notice what David says. But King David said to Ornan, No, I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Does this bring anything to mind? I will not worship God. I will not do what He's called me to do without cost. I think what we see here is really a reflection of the greater son of David to come. Remember, as Satan offers Jesus the kingdom, what does he say? No, I will worship God alone. He turns from that offer of a kingdom without price, without his death, without his cost that God had wanted him to make. And so, in a sense, in a much duller sense, but in a very noble sense, we have David pointing to His greater Son as Jesus Christ pays the ultimate penalty, pays with the cost of His life for the forgiveness of sinners. So David here reflecting that same spirit in some sense, prophetically perhaps, or typologically, there is a sense here where David says, no, I will pay for this place. 
Having secured the site for God's future temple, David went to work on its eventual construction. And in his farewell address as Israel's king, as he hands the throne to his son Solomon, David speaks to the assembled nation about this future temple. Chapter 29 of the same book, 1 Chronicles 29. Verse 1, 1 Chronicles 29. And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great for the palace, will not be for man but for the Lord God. He can mess up his own house if he wants in his inexperience, but not God's house. This is really important. So, verse 2, I have provided for the house of my God so far as I am able. The gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, the wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antinomy, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own, of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, the best of gold. And 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house. And for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver, who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? I will, says David. I will. Approximately 110 tons of gold. 260 tons of silver. The leaders respond, verse 6. The leaders of fathers' houses made their free will offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes and the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. 190 tons of gold, 375 tons of silver, 3,750 tons of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. Joy comes through willingness of gift. For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced greatly. They offered freely and so they rejoiced. When sacrificial giving is coerced, when it is driven by false guilt, the consequences are are bad news. Spirit of bitterness, cold spirit, resentful spirit. These people gave willingly. And in a spirit of joy, David leads the congregation then in prayer. Verse 10, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. I want you to look for two themes in this prayer. They stand out very obviously. The first one is announced here. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. 
In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. That's theme one. The next theme is sounded here. Everything belongs to God. When you get that point, when you really see that, you're moved to pray as David does. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you. There's theme one. Theme two, we have given willingly. And of your own have we given you. We've only given you what is really yours. We've turned it over. We've had this privilege. What is in us that deserves this privilege? Nothing. It is the grace of God. O Lord, all this abundance, verse 16, that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand, is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. You see again the emphasis on freeness, willingness, thus producing rejoicing, and on the fact that it's all God's. O oh Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the King, and the giving continues. They offered sacrifices to the Lord, and on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord. 1,000 bulls, 1,000 rams, 1,000 lambs, with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel, and they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. Every gift we sacrifice to God is His. He blesses us with wealth so that we are privileged to contribute to His purposes. Theme one. Theme two, we are to give freely and willingly. God wants no grudging gift. We should give because we want to. Because He has stirred our hearts to lead us to do what He wants us to do. And the project is brought forward as Solomon takes the reins. Chapter 3 of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 3. Chapter 3, verse 1 of 2 Chronicles. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, at that place of sin and forgiveness. At this place, God now moves to establish His name. His presence among the Israelites. He began, verse 2, to build in the second month, the fourth year of his reign. He begins to build. Chapter 7, verse 4. Chapter 7, verse 4 of 2 Chronicles. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered a sacrifice. 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. Verse 10, on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he went, the people, he sent the people away to their homes, joyful and glad of heart for the prosperity that the Lord had granted to David and to Solomon, to Israel, his people. Thus, Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house as God 
had said. What a glorious temple it was. As people pooled their resources to carry out what God wanted to do. But because of Israel's sinful rebellion against the Lord, this is, it's, it's heart-wrenching to think of it in light of all that we've read. But after Israel was taken captive in 722, in July of 586, 587, one or the other, Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. Nebuzaradan, Babylon's military leader, sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. After 70 years of captivity, 50,000 Jews returned to Israel from Babylon, and one of the first priorities was, guess what? It's time to collect materials and to build the temple again. So under the direction of Sheshbazar, Zerubbabel, and Joshua the high priest led the Israelites to lay the foundations of a new temple. But there were problems. There was economic downturn. There were severe financial difficulties that faced the returnees, coupled with significant external pressure. The project stalls. For some 16 years, nothing really happens on that foundation. And that's where Haggai the prophet gets involved. You'll turn there, go to the end of the Old Testament, and work your way back from there Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai. So little ways in from the end of the Old Testament is the prophet Haggai. This is the setting now. The returned Israelites, foundation laid, nothing happening. Chapter 1, verse 1, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? The Jews had built homes for themselves while neglecting God's house. What was the result? Verse 5, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Let's think about this, Israel. Your houses have been built, sealed with these panels, this wood ceiling, the best of housing. But my house over there just has a foundation. It's not been brought to fruition. Let's think about this. What has happened in recent years? Well, we know great economic trial and opposition from outside. Notice how God looks at it. Verse 5, Now therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Am I right? Yeah, it's exactly how it's been going. According to the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, God withheld material blessing from His people as an act of discipline. Verse 7, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and I may be glorified, says the Lord. And you looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Why has it been this way? Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Now, I asked you earlier to put that thought in your mind. Remember 2 Samuel 7. David, I don't need a house. You're not going to build me a house. I've never dwelled in a house. I don't need a house, says God to David. What does he say to these Israelites? Build me a house. Is God schizophrenic here? Has he lost his way over the intervening ages? No, what God's concerned about is our heart attitude. God cares more about how we view him and his work than about any building. And so to David, he says, no. It's not time, and I don't need it. To these returned Israelites, he said, let's get busy. You're showing your priorities for your own home, homes. You are allowing the house of God to stand in ruins and to detract from the glory of my name among the nations. So let's get busy. Very quickly, we bring this back, and briefly, to Paul's gift. Under the new covenant, God's people do not meet him any longer in a temple. We meet him now in a person. In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who tabernacled among us. The gospel radically redirects the project With Israel, everything was inward, drawing it all into this one place so that people would see here, in this place, behind this veil indeed, is the glory of the Lord of Israel. And all are to come up to Jerusalem, to this temple, and to discern that the glory of God resides here. All of that has been radically changed in Jesus Christ, who is now the meeting place with God. And now the direction is entirely outward. Now God's people move through the world to carry the name of Christ, crucified and risen, to all of the nations. Not inward, not to a building, not to a temple, but now outward to everyone, the proclamation of Christ crucified and risen. We have no movable tent. We have no central temple that is the central temple of the Christian religion or something like that. Now we pool our resources throughout the world at various staging grounds so that from these beachheads of the gospel goes forward the message of Jesus Christ. That He is the final meeting place with God. That He is God indeed. So our giving on this side of the cross serves to advance this spread of the gospel, the edification of the church of Christ, and it constitutes a direct investment in eternity. As Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. How do I do that? I don't give a bag of money and then see it 
loft into the sky in heaven. I invested physical money in physical things here, but they are things I'm investing in so that the gospel of Christ is proclaimed. And as people respond to that message and their names are written in heaven and there is a future for them with the Lord there, our financial resources are serving this cause of Christ. We are laying up treasures in heaven by giving wealth away to advance Christ's cause. That's what Paul was doing. His project looks different than ours. But it's the service of the gospel of Christ. And if we can be confident that what we are giving to, what we are investing in, is the stabilization of the church and the proclamation of the gospel of Christ, then we can be assured as far as possible that our gifts are being invested in eternity. That's what Paul was doing. We have our own project before us right now and seeking to discern where God would lead us and what He would have to do with us. But our project is to commit ourselves to give over a three-year period of time, over and above our regular giving, what we believe God has put in our heart and stirred us to give. If that's nothing, then we give nothing in obedience to Christ. If that is something, then we give that freely, willingly, gladly, joyfully to say, I want to invest in eternity by investing in the spread of the gospel of Christ here. We'll talk, by God's grace, more this evening, but just in the strategy of that, as we collect our gifts If anybody would like to bring gold and silver and iron, feel free. And if you've got ram skins at home, you can bring them in too. We'll see what we can do with them. I've been in a church service where people have brought vegetables. Another part of the planet, but it's what they had to give. It's what they gave. But what we will strive to do is to discern that commitment first for the pace setters who have worked with the committees of uh, working toward relocation and building projects in the past and our church officers to say next Lord's Day, here's where we are. Here's what we believe God wants to do through us. So like David and like the leaders in the giving to the tabernacle, not as an act of obedience to that passage, but just in line with it, we want to say here's the pace that we have desired to set. And then on December 6th for the entire church to say the same thing. I trust, I believe, I'm quite confident that on the cards of some will be a zero. You shouldn't give. God's not put it in your heart. You can't do so willingly. You shouldn't do anything. And that will be good. For others, in this sanctification project, God moves us to put to death the idolatry of money and to give freely beyond our tithes and offerings, to a unique project now as He stirs us to give with joyful heart. We have then before us, I know it's very unique, different than a tabernacle in the temple. It's different than Paul's gift, but we have the opportunity to join hands, to pool our resources in sacrificial giving so as to stabilize and enhance and better display the ministry God has given us together. As we are called to influence our world by our corporate witness of the gospel, 
So we are privileged to move our world by our corporate giving to the advance of Christ's cause on earth. And may we do so in the spirit of God's people through the centuries as we rest in what He has provided and given with a spirit of joyful willingness as God impresses it on our heart what He wants us to do. Nothing more and nothing less. To give in a spirit of devoted worship above our regular giving, acknowledging that everything belongs to Him and that we are striving with Him to advance His name. That's what's before us. May we realize that we walk in line with many of God's people in the past in a unique way. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we pray in behalf of anyone who has not come to saving faith in Christ, has not come to know what Jesus did when He paid with His life for our redemption. I pray that You would open their eyes to the Gospel of Christ and bring them to saving faith today. That they would seek someone out as they leave here and say, I want to know more of what Christ has done to pay the penalty of my sin. When we think of David, who came with his sin of rebellion against God to the Temple Mount, what would become the Temple Mount, we, Lord, sense our own sin and our need to come to decisive conclusion on how it's paid for and how it's forgiven. Move us to know that truth, each one. For those of us who know you, we rejoice to be involved in your calling and in this project that you have given us as a church. It is through Christ that we pray. Amen.